James chapter 3. This is one of those chapters that in the Bible where I think every every person and every preacher feels guilty. Every person that reads it will feel guilty and every preacher that preaches it will feel guilty. It's about the tongue. And uh, I'm going to spend a lot more time on something I didn't plan on. Um preaching to myself and others who teach. Because um, that's a lot of what this chapter's about, is really, if you really look at it closely. But James chapter 3, and beginning at verse 1, My brethren, be not many masters, and the word master means teacher, or one who teaches, knowing that we should receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and dude with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So I simply titled the message tonight, Be Responsible with Your Tongue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege that we have to open your precious word. And as we consider this passage before us tonight, I pray we allow the Spirit of God, who is the author of this book and the teacher, uh, our teacher, to give us understanding and wisdom into the commandments and explanations of this book helps us to understand. I pray that you give understanding that we might be helped and that you may be glorified. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I'm reminded of uh, what I read some years ago about 
B.R. Lakin. B.R. Lakin was an old-time evangelist from back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, I think, somewhere in that era. Anyway, he had a lady, he preached on a tongue, and he had a lady came forward and said she wanted to lay her tongue on the altar. And he said, well, lady, there's 40 feet of it. Let the rest of it hang off the end. So a lady came to John Wesley. I don't know why these jokes are all by ladies, but a lady came to John Wesley and said, I think I find my talent. And he said, oh? He said, yeah, I think my talent is speaking my mind. And John Wesley said, I think you'd be better off burying your talent. <clears throat> now, we need to be responsible with our tongue. And I want to notice, the first thing I want to notice here is the responsible use of the tongue. In verse 1, it says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we should receive the greater condemnation. And again, as I mentioned, the word master here means teacher. And as teachers... And you can apply that to a pastor. I think that's really the application, the primary application of that here. Uh, Ephesians 4 refers to a pastor teacher. Of course, there are others that teach. Uh, of course, there's, you, know, you can have assistant pastors and you can have people that teach, uh, as we do here in our church. But, but anyway, uh, we need to have a responsible use of the tongue as teachers because we are under greater condemnation. We're going to receive greater condemnation or there's greater judgment of a teacher in the use of his tongue. The word condemnation means a sentence or judgment. The idea here, of course, is there's greater accountability. Uh, One commentator said this, quote, James found this that this department of church work had become extremely popular. Hence, his warning about its serious responsibilities. God will judge us on the last day with special strictness on account of our influence over others. You know, I heard I was talking to a couple of guys one day, and, and, they, and they, the, the, the subject of Moses come up and how, you remember, Moses did not get to enter the promised land because he struck the rock twice. And one of these men said, I, I just feel that God was a little unfair with Moses. That was, a, that was a harsh punishment. You know, the thing that Moses wanted anyth- more than anything else in life was to go into the promised land, to see the promised land, the land that God had promised his people. And yet because he had struck the rock twice, instead of speaking to the rock, the Lord said, you're not going in. Because you failed to sanctify me before my people. And, and you know, it seems to, to the reasonable mind that, that, uh, that, was, that was strict punishment. But we have to understand, Moses had been given much. Moses had been given great responsibility and great privileges. He was the man who talked with God as a man talks to a man face to face. Luke chapter 12, verse 48 says, But he that knew not and did commit such things worthy of stripes shall be eaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. You know, if you're, if you're given greater responsibilities or privileges, there's expected more of you. 
You know, many people have this drive to be somebody of power and somebody of authority, a leader of people. What they don't fail to understand is there's lots of responsibility that goes along with that. I was told about a man up in New Hampshire who was a pastor. He got into some problems and, and it got into a court case. And, he, and the guy that said, told me this said it's on court record. They asked him in court why he wanted to be a pastor. And this is what he said. It gave me power over people. And Moses, you know, think about this. Moses did seek that power of himself at one point. But it was rejected. Look at James, or, uh, Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 22 says, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Now, let me stop here and say something. I think it was in Moses' heart that maybe God had put him in this place where he was for the purpose of delivering his people. But the thing that Moses did not understand is God's leadership. How to lead in a right way. If you notice in verse 24, it says, And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye be our brethren, why do ye wrong one to the other? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? So Moses did seek this position, you might say, of deliverance of God's people, but he was rejected. And God had to humble Moses before he was prepared for a leadership role in God's kingdom. You see... What he needed to understand was, as a leader or a teacher or a pastor in God's kingdom, you are under authority. You're under authority. You don't act on your own. You don't act on your own. You know, even as a husband or father, we're, we're not our own. We've been bought with price. We're to glorify God in our body and our spirits, which, which are God's. You know, one church I pastored some years ago, asked, and I asked the men about something. And this was their statement. You're the pastor. You can do whatever you want. I said, no, I can't. I said, just because I'm the pastor doesn't mean I can do whatever I want. You know, they were in a very vulnerable situation. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I told them, I said, gentlemen, I said, you know, a pastor does have authority, but he's also under authority. And he's accountable to the church. You know, Jesus says, if, if he that is going to be greatest among you, let him be servant of all. Servant of all. 
So to receive a position of a pastor or teaching the Word of God is a serious responsibility. James says here, we are going to receive the greater condemnation. We are accountable for more. Not only is there a greater judgment of a teacher, but it's a requirement of spiritual maturity and character. Notice verse 2. It says, For many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. It requires, we must have spiritual maturity. The word perfect here in verse 2 means full-grown, adult, of full age. Mature can be likened to a full-grown man, ready to apprehend divine things. Of mind and character, one who has reached the proper height of virtue and integrity. You know, speaking of the Lord Jesus in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 2, the Bible describes him in Luke chapter 2, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 1, and verse 80, says, Then the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts to the showing, I'm sorry, that's not the right one, uh, chapter 2, it is chapter 2, in verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And so there needs to be, for, for a person to be a teacher, there needs to be this spiritual maturity, or we might say it this way, he must have a good understanding of the scriptures and be able to explain them. In fact, if you notice what it says in verse 2, for many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Now, now as I thought about that, and apply that to a teacher, a man that lacks understanding of the scriptures, or the sense of the scriptures, is going to offend people. It's going to offend people. If he's unprepared to properly handle the scriptures, he's going to offend people. The word offend here means to err to fall, or to cause to stumble. You know, a pastor's responsibility is he must be able to feed the flock. 1 Peter 5.2, Peter says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseas, seers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now the idea of feed is to shepherd, and what a shepherd's responsibility was to lead those sheep to green pastures and to still waters to places of nourishment and food. He was also responsible to take care and get rid of all the poisonous plants. Do you know there's a lot of poison in the world? And if you aren't warned about it, you can fall prey to it. You know, the problem with a lot of preachers is, isn't what they say nowadays. It's what they don't say. It will warn the people about the dangers and the destructiveness of sin. Or of hirelings. You know, the world's full of hirelings. You know, I was thinking, Brother Ho and I were talking about it the other day. There was a, uh, I got a, 
sample subscription of Christianity today. It's not a magazine I would endorse at all. But anyway, they had an interesting article about tax exemption for churches. And, and the writer was saying that really, it, we, we'd be better off if we didn't have tax exemption. Because, because, and his thing was, because it has given the world a cause to criticize us. That we have favor or special favor from the government. You know, I thought there's another reason why we ought to lose our tax exemption. Maybe a lot of these frauds would get out of the business. Because there's a lot of fraud in church eanity. And I'd be in favor of losing our tax exemption if we get rid of a bunch of frauds. You see, we're to feed. We're to feed the flock of God. Look at Titus chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Titus chapter 1, verse 7 says for a bishop, and the word bishop is used interchangeably with the word overseer, elder, um, pastor. It means refers to the same person, the same office. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, Holding fast, here's the feeding part, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. Now the gainsayers are those that speak against you or to contradict you or to oppose you or to oppose oneself. Timothy talks about those in 2 Timothy chapter 2 where he says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. There's the gainsayers. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. You see, a pastor or a teacher of the word of God needs to be, have confidence in the, the, the words of the living God that that they have the that he that the word of god has the answers and is correct concerning every issue of life second peter chapter 1 peter says in verses 3 and 4 according uh, verse, uh, let's read verse 2 through, through 4. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Lord Jesus Christ, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And so... We need to hold forth the word of life. We need to have confidence that in the word of God that it has the answers or the solutions to every issue in life. Every sinful habit, every addiction, every mental problem mankind faces in life, we have an answer to or a solution in the word of God. You know, these problems that we have in life are a lack of knowledge of our Lord and the purpose for which we are created. You know, if, if, if our relationship with him is not right, we will not understand 
our responsibilities, what our responsibilities are or what they are not. We will not know what the responsibilities of church are. A lot of people don't know what the responsibilities of church are. They think they can come, sit in a service, put a few dollars in the offering plate, and they feel good the rest of the week because they've done their duty to the Lord. Do you know that's not the purpose of a church? The purpose of the church is to glorify God, first of all, but is to is described for us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, where it says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things, whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Of course, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 summarizes it, where we've been... We've been given power to get into all the world, um, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. You see, too many people, they have this idea that church is where they, where they can get their wish list fulfilled so they can feel good about themselves, having put a few dollars in the offering plate, what they had left over, uh, a few dollars in the offering plate to help the homeless. Why don't you go join the local Kiwanis Club? That's what you want in the church. That's not what church is for. You see, a pastor or a teacher has to have confidence and understand the scriptures and God's purposes in life. And how to answer every man of the reason of the hope that lies in them with meekness and fear. When Brother Smith was being questioned for his ordination back in, was it January, I guess it was. One of the things he, he mentioned about in his statement was about the sufficiency of the scriptures. That the scriptures are sufficient to answer every need of man. And I, I asked him the question, is there, does that mean that you don't need psychology and you don't need psychiatry and you don't need you know all these other things that the world has to offer. And he said, no, the, the Bible is complete. Again, we have all things that pertain unto life of godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. And so it requires... Teaching requires spiritual maturity and proper use of the tongue. But you'll notice the second thing. The power of the tongue. The power of the tongue. In verse 3 through 12, I have a lengthy passage here, but it says, Behold, we put bits in horses' mouths that may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. And I won't read all this for sake of time, but, but what he does is gives some illustrations here to explain the power of the tongue in, with real life things. And the first one is a bit in the horse's mouth. In verse 3, we put bits in the horse's mouth and may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. You know, an average horse weighs 800 to 2,000 pounds and is four and a half to six feet tall at the withers. But you put a bit in that big animal's mouth, and you can control him. I remember in one farm I worked on, the man had a couple horses, and he had this one big Palomino horse, and he was very energetic. And 
And so I said, well, I'd like to ride him. And so uh, anyway, and they said, well, when you, when you throw your leg over on that saddle, you better be ready to go. And he was ready to go. Um, but he would fight that bit. But, you know, you could keep him under control. And he was a big horse, strong horse. Uh, there was a lady up the road there from us, lived up the road that rode horses all the time. She took him up on the mountain one day and rode him all day long trying to wear him out. And she couldn't wear him out. But, you know, you could still control that big horse. He probably weighed, he probably weighed close to 2,000 pounds. He was big. But you could control him with that little bit in his mouth. My dad had a Holstein bull that weighed 2,600 pounds and was at least, he was over six feet tall at the shoulders. He was taller than I am at the shoulders. He was a big bull. And everybody was deathly afraid of him, with good reason. But my brother, who's about my size, could grab that bull by the ring in his nose and lead him around like a puppy dog. In fact, they took him to the sale barn when he decided to get rid of him. And they unloaded him, and they got him in this chute, and he kind of got stuck in there. And, and the men were afraid to go in behind him, and they were afraid to come in in front of him. And they said, where's that smart-eyed kid that read him off that truck? You know? <laughs> you know, but he could, he could take that bull by the ring of the nose and his nose and lead him around like a puppy dog. He uses the illustration of a ship and a helm in verse 4. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great... And are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Of course, the helm is the steering apparatus of the, of the ship, and, and, and the, 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 the governor of the ship controls or determines where that ship goes with that steering apparatus, the helm. And he said, the tongue is like these things. It's small. It's like a bit in a horse's mouth. It's like that very small helm, which compared to the ship is, is very minute, yet it has such great impact. Verse 5. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire king. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. You know, a person can throw a cigarette out the window at the wrong place, and thousands of acres be burned. Thousands of acres. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. It's described as a world of iniquity. In other words, a world of curses. The sum of all iniquities. You've all heard the little, little rhyme, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. But that little rhyme isn't really true. Is it? The bitter pain of a word spoken against us can hurt us for a lifetime, long after the broken bone has healed. You know, an argument between national leaders can result in hundreds of thousands of deaths. The psalmist said in Psalm 42:10, 
As with a sword in my bones, mine enemies reproach me, while they say... No, it wasn't a sword, but as a sword in my bones, while they say daily unto me, Where is thy God? Where is thy God? Look at Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs, of course, has much to say about the tongue. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. Proverbs 10, 19 says, In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. The tongue of the just is as choice silver, the heart of the wicked is little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for want of wisdom. Chapter 12, verse 25. Chapter 12, verse 25. Heaviness in the heart of man maketh it stoop, but a good word maketh it glad. Of course, that's talking about a word of encouragement. Uh, Chapter 16 and verse 24. Chapter 16, verse 24. Pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. You see, there is great power in the tongue. And, of course, there's power to destroy. There's there's power of life and of death. And this is often confusion or contradictory. Notice in verses 9 through 12, it says, Therewith bless we God, even the Father. Therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God, or in the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth the fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Now think about the confusing and contradictory use of the tongue. You know, Peter's tongue confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And it wasn't too long later to that same tongue curse that he knew him. He cursed that he knew him. It was John that was often called, is called the beloved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. In Luke chapter 9, he and his brother James wanted to call down fire from heaven. And destroy the Samaritans. Because they didn't open to Jesus passing through. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 12. Verse 34. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, 
and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Spurgeon said, quote, It would be a monstrosity, a thing to be wondered at, and stared at as un- unnatural and absurd if a fig tree started bearing olive berries. And it is just as unnatural for a Christian to live in sin. Can he so live as to bear the fruits of iniquity instead of the fruits of righteousness? God forbid that it should be so. Unquote. You see, the natural, the tongue, is confusing and contradictory. Won't you notice also, the tongue requires the mastery of the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 8. But the tongue can no man tame. Just think about that a little bit. The tongue can no man tame. Now, again, ladies, this word man here is generic for mankind. So what God's saying is, there isn't a person alive that can tame their tongue. That can control their tongue. It's not natural. It's not of human nature to bring that tongue into control any more than it's human nature to bring your flesh in control. But the tongue is harder to control than anything else. Even though it's a little member. The tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, evil full of deadly poison. So no man can tame his tongue. It requires, again, the mastery of the Holy Spirit. You know, he talks in the chapter, or, or here in verse 2, about the perfect man. And of course, the perfect man would refer to a spiritually mature person. And how is a man brought to spiritual maturity? It is by submission to the Spirit of God. By yielding to the Spirit of God uh, for the child of God. If you notice in verse 17, it says, The wisdom that is from where? Above. See, it doesn't come from man. This wisdom to control the tongue doesn't come from man. It comes from God. Because no man can tame his tongue. It is from above. And he contrasts here worldly wisdom with wisdom that is from above. You know, this worldly wisdom is wisdom claimed by would-be teachers whose lives contradict their claims. Uh, They live by worldly standards, make personal gain of life's highest goal, being a teacher of the Word of God. There's lots of people who are doing that today. Millionaires. Making millions of dollars off of fraudulent doctrines, perverting and resting the Scriptures. You know, they're always coming up with some new thing. I've seen here recently Paula White and Larry Hutch. I think it's Larry Hutch. Saying that they have this new DVD or something out uh, to overcome poverty. And there's, you know, and they had seven things. And, and of course, he's got this new, Larry Hutch has this new thing that you're supposed to uh, subscribe in and support uh, concerning the nation of Israel. All that it is is, um, I can't even remember the other guy's name that had this thing that, that about support of Israel. Um, he's in, uh, anyway, his, his thing was that 
that uh, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. And therefore, you know, the Jews weren't, it wasn't their fault and they weren't guilty. They really didn't know he was the Messiah. And so he raised these millions of dollars for Israel. Not that he didn't get anything off of it, but you know how that goes. Um, I'll think of his name here in a minute. But, but you know, they, 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 they live or make personal gain off of life's, what should be life's highest goals. The Bible describes them as earthly, verse 15, this wisdom descendeth not from above, is earthly, sensual, and devilish. Earthly has the idea of only having this life in view, that it's just called temporal. Sensual means animal-like, having for its object the gratification of the passions of the flesh. And devilish refers to demonic. It's inspired by the demons, maintained by their influence. That's the wisdom of the from above. But the wisdom, or I'm sorry, that's the wisdom of this, that is of the world. Um, but the wisdom is from above. If you notice in verse uh, uh, 17, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Let me go through a few of those. First of all, it is peaceable. The Bible says in Peter that we're to, to seek peace, to ensue it. That means you have to run after it. You have, to, you have to strive for it. You have to work at it. You have to work at it. In fact, if you notice in verse 18, it says, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. In other words, there has to be some effort put forth for there to be peace. Then it says it's, not, it's first pure, then peaceable. Pure, of course, speaks of, of holiness. Peaceable, gentle. The word gentle is defined as a sweet reasonableness. It is the ability to extend to others the kindly consideration we would wish to receive of ourselves. And easy to be entreated. Someone described this as the sense of not being stubborn and of being willing to listen to reason and to appeal. True wisdom is not rigid, but is willing to listen and skilled in knowing, skilled in knowing when wisely to yield. See, a person that's easy being treated is easy to talk to. Doesn't mean they're going to tell you what you want to hear or agree with you, but they will listen. They will listen. Through your viewpoint. And not react in unkindness. You see, the Bible says we're to be, easy, to be easy being treated. Full of mercy. We don't judge strictly on the basis of law. You know, the Pharisees, that's what they did. They brought the woman caught in adultery. You know, first question I have was, where's the man? And Jesus said, either without sin cast the first stone in her. And then he says, and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. 
This wisdom is without partiality or without judging. Uh, in other words, not inquiring into the faults of others to find matters for censure or matters to criticize. You know, some people find fault in everything. No matter what you do, they're going to find fault with it. So like the, the man who asked for two eggs for breakfast. He told his wife, I want a scrambled and I want a fried. And so she makes him a scrambled egg and a fried one. Sets it before him and he said, you fried the wrong one. See, without partiality and without hypocrisy, not having a double standard, a standard, a standard for yourself and a standard for everyone else. See, this is the wisdom that is from above, and this is how a tongue that is under the, the, the control or the leading of the Holy Spirit responds. It doesn't speak contradictory or confusing things. It is not consistently offensive. Uh, it, 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 this person knows how to wisely use their tongue that it might bring forth fruit. Then I want you to notice verse 18. It says, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in the peace of them that make peace. The fruit of righteousness is sown. You know, sowing requires giving something out. You, have to, you, you scatter the seed. That's the idea. You put it out there. It's sown in peace. If you want peace in your life, you have to sow peace. You know, we have to decide to allow the Spirit of God to control our lives that we might make for peace or produce in us the peaceable fruit of righteousness. We mentioned this, I guess it was uh, a couple weeks ago, in Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 11, where he talks about chastening. In verse 11 it says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous, nevertheless afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised there." By. So you have to put forth some effort to endure the chastening and, and allow God to work in your life to endure that chastening to see the fruit come forth from it. And if we want to have a tongue that is not offensive, that is used responsibly... It's something we have to continue to yield to the Spirit of God. That requires an effort on our part. That requires action on our part. We have to understand that this tongue was bought with a price. And we are to use it to glorify God. It's not ours. It's his. After all, we're his mouthpiece. We're here to give an answer to every man that asketh of the reason of the hope that lieth within us with meekness and fear, Peter tells us. We're here. We're here to give out the gospel. That means we have to teach others the truth of the word of God so that they too can come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
That means we have to use our tongue responsibly to know what to say and, you know, even how to say it and how far to push or to challenge. You know, Jesus said to his disciples at one point, I have many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. You know, you can witness somebody and push them too far, too fast, and turn them off. That's why you need the Spirit of God to direct you in your witnessing. Because you may give them just something to think about. Think about it, and a little later on you can give them more information, more truth, that they may not accept if you try to give them everything at once. Or, like so often, you give them everything once and push them and you'll get a false profession. Well, I like to see people get saved. But we have to be careful. We have to have, have, to have wisdom in using our tongue lest we may offend people and turn them away uh, from the truth of the Lord. And so therefore, it requires wisdom from above. Are we using our tongues responsibly? Let's pray.